We're reading from Isaiah 52, verses 1 to 10. Awake, awake, Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And now we'll read from Acts um, 1, from verse 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back 
in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Good morning, my name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here. Now, just out of curiosity, who's heard of Kenya West before? Okay, quite a few of you. Wow, I didn't know that there'd be so many people into rap. I, I usually try to block out that genre if I can. In 2013, Kenya West released the song called I Am A God. You know, it's in a typical rapper kind of genre, boasting, self-obsession, that kind of thing. And it also kind of not just fitted the genre, but I, I think it pretty much fitted his lifestyle as well. But then last month, you might have heard that he released an album called Jesus is King. And he sings on one of the songs in that album these words, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, all the things he has in store, from the rich to the poor, all are welcome through the door. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Now, that's quite a change, don't you think? I am a God through to Jesus is king. It's quite a change and it was quite a shock for a lot of fans. But what about us? How do we react to a change like that when you, when you hear of such a change? I reckon our, our natural response is probably to react in one of two ways. Either to sort of want to hold him up as a, as a shining example of all things Christian. Or on the other hand, our natural response is to be sceptical to wait for him to stumble and fall. You know, neither response is right. Neither response sees him right or sees God right. Who is Kenya West, really, at his core? Well, he's a human, just like us. Lost, just like us. And just like us, his only hope is Jesus. And who is God? Well, he's the kind of God who saves the lost, isn't he? He's the kind of God who makes sense of life no matter how rich and famous or how poor and insignificant we are. Surely we're not surprised that someone like Kanye West would find Jesus. The world might be confused by this. But we know that Jesus is King of Kings. And yet he lays down his life for the lost of this world. We know Jesus is the servant king. We know the truth and the beauty of who he is and what he's done. We're people who've found forgiveness, who've found eternal life. We've found freedom, joy, peace, meaning. We know that Jesus is bringing about a civilization that's founded on grace and justice and service. And we know that the invitation to join him, to join his cause, it's open to all, whoever they are. So are we really surprised when we see people seeing the beauty and the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and responding by wanting to serve him? Now, we we of all people shouldn't be surprised. Today, as we've heard, we're starting a new series looking at serving God. We're going to spend three weeks looking at this from three different angles. And the first angle that we're going to look at this from today is serving God in his mission. Part of serving God now means joining his cause to take the message of Jesus 
to the ends of the world. And that's because we live in the era of mission. And this is really critical for us to get. Our place in history is in the era of mission. Our time, from God's point of view. It's all about taking the the truth and the beauty of the message about Jesus to the ends of the world. Now, we see this at the start of the book of Acts, which Candace just read for us. The book of Acts is all about how the message of Jesus spread from 11 terrified men hiding in Jerusalem to thousands and thousands of people throughout the known world at the time. At the start of Acts, Jesus has died and he's come back to life again and his disciples have seen him many, many times alive and Jesus has opened their minds to understand the significance of what he's just done for the world. And then at the start of Acts, Jesus tells them that he's going. He's leaving them. And they're to wait in Jerusalem for the pouring out of God's Spirit on them. And to them, from their understanding of Scripture, this sounds like Jesus is saying that a new era has arrived. It's about to begin. And they're right about that, but they misunderstand what this era will involve. Have a look again at at verse 6. Look at what they ask. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking Jesus, is this it? Is the mission over? Are all the, the hopes and the dreams of the Old Testament prophets, you know, some which we just heard before, are they all here? Are they all about to arrive? They're thinking that Jerusalem will finally be the great city of God, the the very centre of the world where all the nations will stream to Jerusalem to worship God. But look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria And to the ends of the earth. Jesus says to them, there will be a time when God's kingdom is on earth. But it's not now. That's when Jesus returns. He says the time right now for them is to be his witnesses. That's their mission. They're to take the the truth and the beauty of what they've seen with their own eyes and, and heard with their own ears... They're to take that message out to the world in in ever-increasing circles. They're not to keep it to themselves. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, these are are expanding circles. It would be like if we were to say Adelaide, South Australia, the Pacific, the whole world. Do you see the significance of this? These are the last words of Jesus that are recorded in the book of Acts. Before he goes. Until Jesus returns, this is the mission. This is our mission too. And what this means, of course, is that it wouldn't be right for us to neglect serving God in the mission. Some people, when you talk to them, uh, they think that wanting to introduce people to Jesus is wrong. And sometimes we can even take on board that thinking ourselves we can feel like maybe they're right I used to live in Armadale and um, the uni there where I worked uh, it wanted to ban people telling 
other people about Jesus on campus. They, uh, they wanted to ban what they called proselytizing. And strangely, even the Uniting Church chaplain wanted to ban it as well. She agreed with them. Whereas all the other chaplains at the uni, they said to the university, are you really saying that we can't say Jesus is Lord? And the uni said, oh, no, no, you can say that. That's fine. And so the chaplain said, well, that's proselytizing. They said to the uni, you know, you've already got rules against harassment and we think that's excellent and entirely appropriate. We're 100% behind that. But to be a Christian is to say Jesus is Lord of all and it would go against everything we believe to keep that truth to ourselves. How could we? In the end, the uni could see that and they let it go. Now, people might not want to hear about Jesus, just like people don't want to hear about all sorts of things like climate change. But that doesn't mean it's wrong for us to want to take God to them, to want to tell them about God. We need to do it gently, respectfully, lovingly, but it's not wrong for us to want to point people to Jesus. The opposite is true, actually. An atheist uh, magician named Penn Gillette, he recorded a video on YouTube where he relays how a Christian came up to him after a show one time and was really polite, thanked him for the show, chatted to him, and then gave, tried to give him a Bible uh, and point him to Jesus. And, and he talks about how he actually really appreciated this in this video that he made and he says these words he says I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize he's not a Christian he's an atheist but he says I don't respect that at all if you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? He's right. Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, meaning, joy, hope. These are the things that we know that are only really, fully, truly found in Jesus How could it be right for us to neglect serving God in the mission? A bit later on in Acts, in chapter 6, the disciples, they hit a bit of a road bump in the mission to take the message about Jesus to the ends of the earth. As the church grew quickly, the complexity of caring for for people, diverse people, it, it grew too. In Jerusalem, They had people in the church who were from different backgrounds, different countries, had different languages. And they had widows back then who their only way of being cared for was was the generosity generosity of people in the church providing for them. And they were having trouble logistically making sure everyone was being cared for. They had thousands and thousands of people spread across many churches with house churches without a, a big building without an app that conveniently kind of lets you know that you were on serving that day the complexity for them must have been enormous and the 12 who'd been given the job of leading the mission to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the world they must have been feeling pretty overwhelmed they haven't even made it out of Jerusalem yet and already it looks like the wheels are about to fall off the whole thing did it matter Widows in the church had food to eat? 
Well, yes, absolutely. I hope you agree. It matters. It would have been wrong if no one was, was looking out for them. But at the same time, even good causes could not be allowed to get in the way of mission. Look at what the, the 12 apostles say in chapter 6, verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. The ministry of the Word of God, both in the church and outside the church, it it couldn't be neglected, not even for good reasons. The mission of, of taking the message about Jesus to the ends of the world, it must go on. It's what this time in history is all about. This ball can't be dropped no matter how good the cause is. Now, at the moment, you've probably heard that there's some terrible fires happening in New South Wales, uh, near where my in-laws live, near where I used to live too, actually. It's a place I once stayed at a camp has been burnt down, the Nimboida Canoe Centre. We've had our own fires here. And some of you know what it's like, actually, to see the flames on the hill near your house. Now, at those times, how thankful are you when you see the CFS, the Country Fire Surf Service, turn up? At times like that, how thankful are you that they're not neglecting their mission? Now, I don't know any firefighter who goes to the training, who does all the drills, who maintains their uniform and their equipment, but then when the hot day comes and the, and the fires come, I've never, never met a firefighter who decides, to, who decides instead of answering the, the call to serve to cool off that day at the beach. It just doesn't happen that way. It wouldn't be right to call yourself a firefighter if when the Adelaide Hills are burning, you're cooling off at semaphore. It wouldn't be right for them to neglect their mission. And even more so, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect our mission even for good causes, which means we've got to find smart ways to manage the good things that we we should be doing, we must be doing, so that we can keep our overall energy on the mission. And this brings us to our next point. God's mission shapes everything else we do in life. Now, this is true as individuals, but it's true as a church as well. Look at how God's mission shaped what they did in Acts 6 verse 3. The apostles say, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Their solution to keep their energy on the mission is to raise up people to serve. They raise up seven people who will enable the mission to keep going forward by making sure that they don't drop the ball on the good cause of caring for widows. And it's not like the people that they raise up only care about practical acts of love, while the 12 only care about evangelism. It's a team effort. They're united in the mission. If you read what happens next, you'll see that one of the seven in front of a hostile crowd tells people about Jesus, and he ends up being the first Christian to die for his faith, even before any of the 12 die for their faith. They're all in it together. They're all serving the bigger mission. And they all agree they can't afford to drop the ball on this, even for very good reasons. If we belong to Jesus, we're all a part of this mission. 
And what this means for us is that we're to have one hand in and one hand out in how we serve. Let me explain what I mean. Our one hand in is how we serve God by serving his people. This is all the ways that we serve each other, whether here at church or in our community groups or elsewhere. So we're called to have one hand in. But we're also called to have one hand out. And this is how we serve God by serving people who don't know him yet. We have one hand in and one hand out. And in the Bible, there are three ways that every single one of us is called to serve with one hand out. I'm going to very quickly run through them. So the first way is that we pray for those who don't know Jesus. And we see this in places like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. And here we get what God really wants, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, prayer is amazing. Prayer is is how God chooses to do what he might not otherwise choose to do. Prayer is how God chooses to do what he might not otherwise choose to do. God wants us to pray that he'll save people who don't know him yet. Second thing is we're called to do good. We're always to do good, even when we're treated badly and and part of the reason that we're called to do good is so that people can see the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is. We see this in places like 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The number one way someone can glorify God is by seeing who he is and turning to him, knowing him. The third thing that we're all called to do is to be ready to explain why it is that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. We see this in places like 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. When we have an opportunity or half an opportunity, or even an eighth of an opportunity, then we share why Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. That's what every follower of Jesus is called to do in the mission. We all serve with one hand in, and all of us serve with one hand out, praying, doing good, and being ready to share Jesus. And our entire lives are to be shaped by this mission, just like a firefighter's life is, is shaped By their mission, when they get the call, they still live, they still eat, they still sleep, but all these things are shaped by the mission. Where they eat and sleep is shaped by the mission. In the same way, God's mission is to shape our lives. We don't think about our work the same way. We don't think about family the same. Our priorities are not the same. We're not living for the house or the next renovation or the next holiday. We still get on with life and and maybe we do all those things, but they're touched by the mission. And this doesn't mean that we're all called to go overseas as missionaries or even that we're all gifted to be evangelists. And this is our next point. Our lives are shaped 
by mission, but we serve different roles in it. See, we're all called to pray, we're all called to do good, we're all called to share Jesus where we can. But beyond that, we all have different ways we can serve in God's mission. Some people are so gifted at serving in church that, that they free up people who are serving and gifted outside of church. You know, some people are amazingly gifted at talking to other people about Jesus. They just smile and people ask them questions about their faith. Or they've got an amazing mind, an ability to just answer people's questions with clarity. Or some people have got an amazing EQ where they can kind of sense in other people what their questions and their feelings and their hesitations are before they can even express it themselves. And they can help people take the next steps with Jesus. These are people who are brilliant at having one hand out. Now, we're not all gifted like that. But still, we can play our part in the mission. You know, going back to the country fire service for a second. You know, the 70-year-old lady who wants to play her part in the mission. She's probably not going to be best placed on the front line putting out the fires. But she can still be a part of the mission. She might be back at the base helping those who you know, are returning from the front line to have a break, the firefighters, maybe serving in ways there, maybe serving food. Is she any less a part of the mission? No. Is she any less important? No. Would it be right for a firefighter to leave their spot on the front line to cook in the kitchen? No, it wouldn't. Now, in the same way, we can serve God in different ways and yet be doing it with the same mission in mind. We're called to be a people with one hand in, and one hand out. But here's the thing. Some of us are brilliant with that one hand out, but others are brilliant with that one hand in. And we need both. If we let those who are brilliant at mission get so caught up with serving on rosters and in programs in church, no matter how important those programs might be, we could end up neglecting our mission as a church. That's why it's, it's so important that we all play our part in serving in different ways. If we all serve, we, we free up others to do the ministry that God's gifted them to do. And conversely, when we hold back from serving, if we don't have the mission in mind, we can draw people back from where they're gifted. Now, if you're not serving at the moment and you actually want to and, and, and feel that you could do more why don't you fill in the slip today and put it in the um, bags as they come around later and and Noel will have a chat to you and see where you might be able to serve but you know even as we serve with our one hand in even as we serve here still we can do that shaped by the mission let me see if I can explain how mission shapes even how we serve each other here think again of that 70 year old lady with the country fire service now, imagine she's been watching a little bit too much MasterChef on TV. And she, does, she decides that the meals that she's going to serve up to the fireys as they're coming back from the front line is a 16-course gastronomic feast paired with locally sourced wines and cheeses. Now, that might be an amazing feast. But that's not going to be serving the mission. That's out of place. And likewise... 
If instead she serves up a cold can of baked beans with some celery on the side, that's out of place for the mission. The mission should shape how she serves. She needs to be thinking, what will serve these men and women so that they can get fueled, energized and return to the front line, fighting the fires? And in the same way, in every way we serve, every way, we need to think about the purpose of what we're doing and how that purpose relates to the mission. Each of us here needs to think that through for ourselves. In every way we serve, whether on a roster or informally, whether here or somewhere else, we need to think, how should this be affected by the mission? Now, we don't have time today to run through lots of examples, but let me just give you a couple. Let's think about the service leader to start with. You know, what are they trying to do when they're up here up the front? They're serving, first of all, Christians here in church by making the, the service, our time together, orderly and lifting our vision to God. Really, they're helping us to magnify God. But if they're going to do their job well, then they also need to remember our mission as they serve. We don't want to just help Christians magnify God. We want to help all people magnify God. People who aren't Christian who join us as well. We want to make it as easy as possible for people to hear the truth and the beauty of Jesus. Now, our service leaders up the front and our preachers too, for that matter, we could get up the front and talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, penal substitutionary atonement, the eschatological hope that we have, the imminent trinity versus the economic trinity. And that would be stupidly missing the mission. That would be a 16-course meal. But on the flip side, our service leaders could get up the front and give us baked beans and celery. They could get up the front and say, now church is going to begin. And they could get up at the end and say, now we're done. (laughs) But if they're going to serve in a way that has the mission in mind, they'll make sure that across the service, whether it's them or the songs or the prayers or the readings or whatever it is, they'll make sure that across the service, We see that God makes himself clearly known in his word, the Bible. They'll make sure that we see that Jesus died in our place so that we can be forgiven our sins. That he took our punishment. That because of his death we'll live in this world restored to what it was always meant to be. And that we can truly know God as he truly is in himself. If we grasp the mission, it shapes everything we do. And we'll try to speak clearly in a way that helps even someone who's not close to Jesus understand who he is. And if you're here and and you don't know Jesus yet, that's our goal. Like our website says, we want to make it as easy as possible for anyone to check out Jesus and discover what's so good about him. But the truth is, and you've probably noticed this, that we fail at it. And I'm sorry for that. When we do that, we're forgetting our mission. Now, why do we say every week, take your kids to creche if you want or keep them with you if you want? Why do we say every week after the service, now's the time to head out and and pick up your kids from creche? It's not because somebody left their kids one day and it was annoying. It's not because the creche leaders, you know, 
turn horrible after 11.30, like gremlins or something. And it's not because we think that you're going to forget. It's because we want everyone who comes in to have every opportunity to feel comfortable so they can better hear about the truth and the beauty of Jesus. And when you know your kids are well cared for and you know that they're welcome here or there, then it's easier to hear that. Now, this should shape everything we do, the mission, everything we do as individuals, everything we do as a church. If we're doing things that deny people the opportunity to hear the message of Jesus again and again, or if we're doing things that deny people the chance to understand it, or if we behave in ways that drive them away, or even if we behave in ways that don't go out of our way to help them see that they are so welcome and that we so want them to hear about Jesus, then we're not living true to the mission. Let me try to give you one more example of how God's mission might shape how we serve Him here. Those who serve in morning tea, what are they trying to do? Well, they're serving God's people, us, by providing an environment where we can care for each other. Morning tea is about caring for the members of God's church. But it should also be about mission. If you're doing morning tea, you're helping people feel comfortable here. Let's be honest, church is a pretty weird place for a lot of people, right? But coffee and cake isn't that weird. Coffee and cake is quite comfortable. In a small but significant way, at, at morning tea... You are helping people to want to be here. You can help people have every opportunity to want to stay around and talk to people and even to want to come back. And if I'm thinking about the mission when I'm planning morning tea, how might that shape things? Well, it'll mean that I want to overwhelm people with kindness and generosity and hospitality. That's just a tiny taste of what Jesus has done for me. Where I go on holidays, there's, um, there's a church of about 30 people and I reckon they've mastered this. My kids absolutely love the morning tea there. There's tables of sausage rolls and party pies and chips and chocolate biscuits and token chopped up carrots. <laughs> now, I'm, sh- I'm sure this is your experience if you've got kids. Normally it's the kids trying to drag the parents away from church. Not there. It's the parents saying, come on, I want to go trout fishing or whatever's next. But the kids, their eyes, they light up when they see the morning tea. And the people are saying, here, have more, take more. It's amazing. And when you've got teenage kids, and when they're going through that phase of not wanting to go to church, if little things like morning tea help them get up out of bed and be here, then that's an awesome way to be a part of the mission. You know, when you think about it, kids and teenagers are the future of the church taking the mission to the ends of the earth. Can you see how even morning tea can be approached with mission in mind? In whatever role you serve in a church, there are always two hats you're wearing. And one of them is always mission. I don't have time to go through more examples. But that's our job, each one of us, to think through how can we serve the mission in what we're doing. And this way of thinking, it overflows into all of life so that I start to see people differently. 
It changes how I pray for people. It changes how I treat people. It changes when I find that I'm frustrated with someone, how I feel about them. I want them to come to know the love of Jesus. And it means even though I feel completely out of my depth, I'll risk talking to people about God. Sometimes I'll invite them to an event. Sometimes I'll lend them a book. Sometimes I'll just introduce them to an overconfident Christian friend who has no trouble talking. Sometimes I will myself share what it is I love about Jesus. But always the mission comes with me everywhere because that's what this time is all about. That's how we should be thinking. You know, in the 1970s, sociologists of religion, they predicted that, you know, with globalisation, global modernisation, that that would drive the world to become more secular. As the world became more educated, more advanced, more scientific, then religious belief would retreat. That seemed to have happened in the West, and so of course the West expected that the rest of the world would follow them. Typical. But the hypothesis failed. Now sociologists are predicting an increasingly religious world, and Christianity is expected to increase, not decrease. A recent study found that 40% of Americans who were raised non-religious became religious as adults. And the children of, of atheists in America are more likely to become Christians than the children of Christians are to become atheists. You know, in China, conservative estimates are that there are 68 million Christians. 5% of the population. And some people are saying that there'll be even more Christians in China than in America by 2030. Even though it's a secular country that's trying to suppress Christianity. Some are saying it could be a majority Christian country, even by 2050. Even in places like Iran, the church is growing at a a fast rate. The truth and the beauty of the message of Jesus is spreading to the ends of the earth. And are we surprised by this? We shouldn't be. We should be excited. We should recommit ourselves to want to play our part in serving God in the mission. Here in Adelaide and beyond. Let me pray for us. Father, you have entrusted us with an amazing mission. You've given us such a privilege that our most significant work that we can do is to play our part in taking the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done to the ends of this world. Lord, you see our minds and our hearts and you know how quickly we give up putting our hands to this mission. Lord, help us to recommit ourselves, to play our role serving here, one hand in, but serving out there as well. And those of us who are especially gifted at it, amongst us who you've given us in this church, we pray that you would empower them to get on with it. Help us who are gifted in other ways to get on with the things that are going to free people up to do that. Lord, move through us so that more and more people come to know you to the glory of Jesus, our Lord and our wonderful Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.